my time inside the NRA's corruption trial in New York, plus an interview with an independent gun store owner who was undecided headed into the Republican New Hampshire primary. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a C9 contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over today and check out our membership options. If you want to get all of the most up-to-date information on what's happening with guns in America, you can also, of course, first sign up for our free newsletter. If you haven't already, you'll get one email a week. Keeps things uh, from crowding your inbox. We, we try to keep uh, keep that in mind when we send out our our newsletters but and of course if you buy a membership you'll get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else uh, you'll also get this podcast today early and an opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment this week we are we are talking with uh, a Re- uh, Republican primary voter we're getting into some of the uh, the election season here we've already gone through two elections uh, the most recent one of course is uh, I'm sure you're all following was in New Hampshire. And we have, uh, and actually a, a gun store owner from New Hampshire who was profiled by the New York Times recently. Uh, and I think has a pretty unique and interesting story that's, uh, Ben, uh, from Wicked Weaponry. Welcome to the show. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. And, and, uh, can you just give people a quick background about yourself? Just yeah. So, uh, I own Wicked Weaponry Firearms. Uh, we are right side, right outside of Manchester, New Hampshire, one of the biggest cities uh, in New Hampshire. Um, I've had my business for about 12 years to be 12 years in the spring. Uh, we do primarily Seracote refinishing and we do, uh, AR 15 builds and service. Um, we also do a little bit of Glockworks, Smith and Wesson stuff and some SIG stuff because they're right next door. We have a lot of SIG business as well. Um, we try to keep it pretty simple, um, uh, but primarily service and, uh, in general, like sales stuff. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Boschman. So Ben Boschman of Wicked Weaponry. That's like a, you got a lot of alliteration going on there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and, and like I mentioned, uh, you, you had done an interview with, with the New York Times in the lead up to the New Hampshire primary because you weren't, yep. you weren't sure about who you were going to vote for, right? This is, uh, yeah. which might be surprising to some people, right? Because you're, you're a gun store owner. Um, Donald Trump has gotten the endorsement of the NRA over the mm-hmm. years, uh, has, has had a close relationship with them, but of course also has maybe disappointed some people on policy in, on that front. Uh, we've mm-hmm. talked about this a lot in, in the election, but, but um, can you just give us your, your view of, uh, uh, of why you were perhaps undecided going into the election? Yeah. So uh, it's kind of interesting. Actually, the Times article ended up coming out because they had cold called me kind of expecting what you would get with, uh, you know, your typical gun shop. And when we started talking, they kind of realized that I, I was uh, a, a little bit of a, a different voter than what they were used to when they had called stuff. So uh, that's how we kind of ended up with the, the article there. Um, you know, in the, in the lead up to the election uh, or to the primary, I should say, it's for me, I'm always open-minded because, you know, there's always a lot of candidates. There's always a, a lot of different viewpoints. And I've, I've always been pretty uh, proud of being uh, not a single issue voter, but trying to look at the totality of, of where we're going as a country, as well as the stuff that I believe in, um, you know, when I'm looking at who I'm voting for. So, um, you know, when they were asking about stuff about the primary, I really didn't have a direction because it was, 
it's to me, it's a hard choose right now. At least that's what it seems to be. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is, I think one of the reasons I'm sure that they found you interesting. And one of the reasons I found uh, your, your interview interesting is because the, there's, you know, a sort of stereotype about gun voters uh, or about the gun owners being gun voters. And that mm-hmm. it's the only thing they vote on and they vote party line every sure. time Republican um, and, and that they're all, uh, you know, basically aligned with Donald Trump at this point. And, um, you know, we've talked about a lot in the primary, how Trump has a number of vulnerabilities on this particular issue from the uh, pro-gun side of, of it. Uh, but those haven't really become much of a, uh, an issue in the case, um, or in this, in this primary. And I think it's, uh, it's been pretty fascinating to try and watch. And, um, and so, yeah, I want to get the view of someone like you, because I think also that you're perhaps emblematic of, of, uh, maybe a new generation of gun owner, um, you know, a, a different demographic than normal, uh, somebody who's not necessarily a, a party line conservative Republican, uh, but, but also clearly believes in, in gun rights, including, uh, owning AR-15s and things of that nature. Mm. Uh, since you, I assume you approve of owning them since you, you yeah, yeah, and sell absolutely. Them. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. So, so that, that's why I wanted to have you on and, uh, by the way, excuse my voice for anyone who's noticing this. Uh, but I'm getting over a little bit of a cold, but, um, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so take us through your thought process when you were going yeah. to down to vote, uh, during, as the primary approach, what were you, what were your main considerations and where did guns fall on that? that scale. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in, in totality, I mean, the second amendment is, is absolutely, uh, one of the most important things to me. Um, you know, but it does not exist in a vacuum. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of hills that I'm willing to die on. If you talk to anybody, uh, any of my friends or family who listen to me, you know, uh, get up on my soapbox, there's a lot of things that I'm passionate about, including the second amendment. Um, so certainly leading up to the primary, um, well, the Second Amendment is first and foremost because it's my business. It's 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 right there in front of my mind. Um, you know that there are certainly a lot of other social issues. I mean, whether it be like immigration or economic policy, or I said about in the article, you know, um, you know, abortion rights and things like that. Um, it it's becomes a juggling act because I'm not just a business owner. I'm also just a regular American. So. Um, you know, it, it, it is a lot of like constant calculations. Even right now, I've, I've got the news on at the house and always just kind of taking a look at, at what's going on throughout the day and, and what changes and, and what's brought up. Um, because, I, you know, again, I, I kind of don't want to just stay in the one box of the gun store every day and talk to gun people and talk about Second Amendment things because there's, a little, you know, there's other stuff. I, you know, on the weekend, I do things that aren't firearms related. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. yeah and, and I don't think that's that's terribly unique, even among gun owners, right? I think, again, going back to this sort of stereotype, a lot of, especially I think gun rights activists have about how, how gun owners approach elections, which is that guns are the number one issue and it's the only issue and it's the only thing they'll vote on. And I, I don't think that's actually true in a majority of, of cases. It's certainly an issue, I think, where gun owners probably put gun, you know, gun policy higher up the list than non-gun owners do. But, for sure, for sure. but it's not yeah. necessarily the only thing that, that everybody votes on. Yeah. And I would, t- I would tell you, that's probably the one thing that I've noticed in the last few weeks is there's been quite a lot of people who have come in and said that they, they feel the same way in that they're, they're 
much more nuanced when it comes to their political ideology. Um, that's not to say that I don't see the people who are definitely single issue voters and who, I mean, for whatever reason, either either it's too difficult or too complex to take the time to get into the other subjects. And it's just really easy to say, I love the Second Amendment. Let's latch on to that. And that's, you know, whoever comes out in the, in the math that says they're the, the, the best for it, you know, I'll go that direction. There's certainly those people there. But I think that, you know, when you start talking to people one on one instead of in larger groups, you start to see that there's a lot more subtlety and kind of nuance there for sure. Hmm. And and so, OK, so maybe maybe guns wasn't your top issue when you went to, to vote uh, in the in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, but as far as where that issue, where it, but I but presumably it does rank fairly high for you. Right. That's, that's yeah, sort yeah. Of the bottom line. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And when you were when you were headed to vote. Uh, how did how did things stack up in your mind? How how did the, you know how how did the candidates stack up? I mean, was there much of a fight? Did anyone try to appeal to you on this issue? You feel in the in the primary? No, I honestly didn't see. I saw vague uh, generalities, and to be fair, there was you know I'm sure there was a ton I missed because I wasn't um, you know super educated going up to the primaries on all of the. Um, on all the candidates, honestly, the things that stuck out to me the most were non second amendment things that kind of turned me off from them. Mm. Um, you know, and then actually a few of them dropped off before the primary anyway. So relieving was wasn't a consideration at that point. Um, so, you know, I mean, honestly, I didn't see anything that was promising. And I, and again, I've mentioned this before it is, is both sides have some really kind of terrible track records when it comes to second amendment and Donald Trump, specifically, you know, um, having to deal with the bump stocks and things like that. And regardless of how you feel about the item, you know, that happened under him. Right. Um, you know, so, but I also see people who are very willing to turn a blind eye to that because he says he's pro 2A. Um, so again, I don't, I don't, I think that's a little disingenuous because if it was the other way around, I think people would hang their hat and say, this guy hates the second amendment because he did something like that. So I think there's an argument to say that maybe being a little bit more objective and thinking critically about what the actual track record is or what they're, what they're purporting to be about. Um, those things kind of, those need, need to align. And if not, then it's either, it's just a net zero for me or, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a negative or positive, you know? Yeah. And did you see, I mean, at least by the time the New Hampshire primary actually arrived, it was really just two candidates at that point, uh, Nikki yeah. Haley and, and Donald Trump on the Republican side. Yeah. Um, and did you see anything from either either candidate talk, trying to convince you that they were better on uh, on the Second Amendment? Or did, I mean, do you know did Nikki Haley's rep, uh, uh, record come up at all? You've, you obviously have a little bit of knowledge about Donald Trump's, but uh, yeah, no, no, and whether or not that was uh, on purpose, you know, by her people, or or we just haven't kind of gone down that path with her. Um, uh, it, it certainly wasn't as like a casual, very much a casual, you know, um, political watcher as far as like uh, all that goes. I those were not the conversations that I heard. And those weren't the, the things that I had seen brought up, at least not on the regular. Um, so whether or not they don't really want to get into it right now, maybe their concerns are more about border security in Israel. Maybe that's the, the, the focus right now, which I totally understand. Um, you know, I think it won't. It I mean, won't you be, are. You're a gun store owner. You'd think maybe they would try to target you on that, that issue. They probably know yeah. that in their voter rolls, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and I don't know. 
I honestly don't know what the angle is and uh, as far as like why maybe they've just seen in the past to, to be super pro two a hasn't helped a ton. You know, I mean, they know they want the voters for sure, which I get that, but I think, you know, making it a, a very strong part of their platform and potentially not politically beneficial if you're trying to gain voters from the other side. I don't know. Maybe have to talk to their campaign managers for yeah, sure. Maybe. But I, I, yeah, I would like to, it, it would be nice if something like this was regimented, right? Like during the debates, you had to talk about one of the, you know, each, you had to hit the five tent pole, you know, items, whether it be economics and border control and second amendment, and, you know, whatever. And everyone has to say a little bit of, uh, a little bit on each one that we can kind of track them and hold them, yeah. you know, hold them accountable, said, hey, listen, you've been saying that this is what you're all about. Now you're heel turning. So what are we going to do? But, you know, the, the debates are kind of what they dissolve into. And, you know, the political, you know, uh, uh, commercials and advertisements uh, kind of you know spiral into whatever's getting people at the moment. So mm-hmm. we are very lucky right now to a certain degree that, um, you know, we haven't had a, a major Sandy Hook or, or gun violence uh, incident very recently. Um, so it's maybe something that they're avoid talking. They're trying to avoid talking about. Um, but, but, but I, even I'm, like uh, the Trump campaign, right? I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the negatives of his record. He, he, mm-hmm. There's positives that he can point to with uh, mm-hmm. especially with the appointment of the Supreme Court justices that were involved in the Bruin case, which is a landmark. Mm-hmm. Second Amendment case, you didn't hear anything from his campaign either on that front. No, no. And again, uh, you'd think that that'd be something that they would uh, they would definitely want to show you is, you know, I mean, but it, at least not from my people. And if my people aren't reflecting it back to me and I'm not hearing it, then clearly that's not what they're campaigning on, at least not at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't you didn't hear it directly and you didn't hear any of your customers mentioning it either. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It really seemed pretty absent. The entire camp. I mean, there was a little bit with uh, Ron DeSantis and his campaign, his super PAC, very early on, but they didn't put a lot of effort into it. Or I guess it didn't make it up to New Hampshire. It seems yeah. um, he obviously wasn't still in the race by then. But but uh, so um, you know, t- are you comfortable sharing who you ended up uh, voting for? Did you did you end up voting in the primary? I did uh, vote okay. in the primary. Uh, I will abstain from saying who I voted for. Okay. Uh, you know, again. Uh, and that kind of goes back to my original point where I really, I want people to vote have their values and their priorities. And, you know, uh, if I thought that it, that it mattered that I said who I voted for, then uh, I probably would definitely not say <laughs> because I, I am my person and I, I want people to vote, you know, um, their conscious and their values. Um, I think that the totality of our individual ideas together are probably one of the greatest things. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, not terribly eventful and I don't think it impressed anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, President Biden, right? Uh, now, he's uh, he's been very aggressive on uh, trying to implement gun restrictions, mm-hmm. uh, even without new laws passed by Congress. He did. He did. An, he did manage to get a, uh, a new gun law passed in 2022, uh, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most I think a lot of things people have been upset with in the gun community from from the Biden administration have been more of his um, executive orders or the rulemaking that they've done through the ATF, things Correct, like the yeah. pistol brace ban, the ghost gun ban. There, there's yeah. quite a lot of them. They're, they sort of yeah. follow that that um, that guide that the uh, bump stock ban had had laid down under President mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a lot of them have, have run into serious trouble in court, but 
Um, but it's been something that has obviously uh, upset a lot of gun rights advocates. Uh, that yeah. They're not happy with President Biden's performance on the issue. Um, uh, is that how you feel about that particular issue with President Biden as well? Or yeah, yeah I mean, it, yeah, and decidedly so. I, there, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, um, President Biden has been very clear from the very beginning, from vice presidency into previous, you know, his, his feelings on, um, you know, firearms uh, legislation, regulation. Um, I think uh, my, my biggest issue is that, well, one, I'm not expecting him to change for sure. Um, you know, and I think that has started to trickle down, you know, we're seeing the ATF stuff with like the, the, the brace, the brace reclassifications or however you want to argue that. Right. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, I mean, to a, to a, to a point, I think that's because the technology and the, the, the laws are starting to hit a weird juncture where, you know, this, there's some of the stuff that hasn't been rewritten or haven't, hasn't been re-looked at in, you know, a hundred years. Um, so some of these technology things are starting to become, um, confusing and, and we're obviously looking for clarification on both sides. Uh, so that's where I think some of this stuff starts to come sure. to your head. Um, but, but yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not seeing anything positive from, from the Biden campaign, certainly nothing that I support through the second amendment. Yeah. Um, so, so on that I, issue, yeah. you, you're obviously not happy with the president, but, uh, on other issues, it sounds like you might be more aligned, uh, with him. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, guns are not necessarily the only issue you care about in these right. elections. Uh, you know, how do you view that with a general election matchup? Um, you know, is the fact that you don't like his approach to gun policy disqualifying to you? Um, is the fact that maybe you don't like the Republicans and, and I, I don't know, some January 6th or some of the other yeah. thing, issues that have happened uh, yeah, with President yeah. Trump? Is that disqualifying on that end, even if you like his gun? You know, how, how are you looking at this? Yeah, so I think it's it. The way that I look at it uh, is that I think from a totality standpoint. And so uh, while I don't like any, any of president Biden's, uh, you know, history or stance on firearms regulation, I do have a lot of faith in the States to, to help protect and our legislators to help protect. And there are, there are layers that we can fight. And again, like the, the, the arm brace, um, reclassification for the ATF. That's a good example. I mean, currently we're doing, we're in much better territory. I mean, certainly I don't think the fight's over. There's a long way that that has to go before it's, it's, it's over, but you know, we, we have recourse, um, in, in a lot of these areas. Uh, I'm not saying that we have to, you know, kick back and think that everything's going to be okay if we see another, um, Biden presidency. But what I'm saying is, is that I think that being so, Farms legislation regulation being so complex, I think we have a lot of other tools at our disposal rather than just putting, you know, one person and saying that they're going to fix a problem or be the problem. Um, Whereas, again, if I look at like someone like former President Trump, who from a totality standpoint is problematic in a lot of other areas for me, um, you know, I may I may want to back him because he's a Second Amendment uh, supporter. Um, but there's a lot of other things that become issues for me at that point. So I think, again, uh, you know, not saying I want to vote for either. Uh, I would say that I think there's a, a lot more positives I see from Biden in other areas that are not Second Amendment for me. Um, yeah. And that can sometimes become a, like like an easier thought versus the other mm. way around. 
You're right. So you're seeing things on either side, with either the major. I mean, uh, you know, look, Donald Trump is is well ahead in the Republican primary. He won New Hampshire, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. It's not over necessarily, but mm-hmm. but uh, it's a it's a pretty long shot that Nikki Haley is going to come back and, and win. Um, so that it seems like we're going to get a rematch of those yeah. two, and uh, they're more po- unpopular than the last time they ran against each other. Yeah, yeah. And, I think um, equally, equally so too. Uh, yeah. I don't think I don't think I've met anybody who has been super thrilled about either candidate, um, or, or or them potentially going head to head again for sure. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, you know, it, it feels like there's probably a lot of people who who at least are in that stage of like, I don't necessarily want to vote for either one of these people. But uh, it, it sounds like maybe uh, are you at the point where you find either one completely disqualifying? You wouldn't turn out or you or if like, uh, you know, or are you at the moment now where maybe I'm not going to vote in this next election at all? I, I don't like I, I'm just that's, trying to th- yeah. think. Through that's, this. Yeah, that's that's tough because I go back and forth some for some some days. I think it's a, a political decision to like say I'm not going to vote and abstain. But then there's the mathematical argument that if you don't vote, you know, you're helping one person or the other. Right. Um, Very common argument these days. Right? Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. If I'm being super honest, I don't know whether I'm going to abstain or or pick a side. Um, it's I still think we have a little ways to go. There is part of me that while I'm not like a Nikki Haley supporter out of the gate, it be, would be very interesting to see her if she could somehow secure the nomination um, and it would at least give us a different conversation. Right. And take the, some of the drama that, that comes with, um, you know, former president Trump out of the equation, but um, you know, I it mean, doesn't seem like most Republican primary voters feel that way, I guess. Yeah. And I, I don't, uh, I personally don't know why. I mean, I talk to my, uh, my, my customers all the time and I see a lot of people who are begrudgingly or some people who certainly don't, don't, don't support Donald Trump anymore but are just so adverse to Joe Biden that they will literally back him, even though they tell me they don't like him at all. Sure. I, I see that as. And I think uh, that's a common thing on the left yeah. as well with Joe Biden, where they not oh, a lot of sure. enthusiasm for him. Oh, but for there's sure. a lot of uh, potentially people who might vote against Donald Trump. There's a lot of a voting against the other person. For sure. Although for I, sure. I think yeah. Trump probably wins that enthusiasm aspect a little bit. He does have very enthusiastic supporters. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is very true. They might not yeah, be yeah. the majority of of the country or even a majority of the Republican Party, but they're, they're yeah. pretty sizable, John. Probably more yeah. so than, than Biden. Yeah, yeah. It could certainly be the case. Uh, I mean, I, I think the some of the other interesting stuff that I've seen on, on for, for our Trump supporters is that some of them have, where while they used to be really outspoken, um, you know, I have some people who have turned and don't want to speak out saying that they are not exactly Trump supporters and they're, they're actually afraid of backlash within the community. Hmm. So um, I think that is a new thing that I've seen within the last um, I'd say few, few months uh, leading up to the primaries where there was some people who really did want to talk about the other candidates, but were kind of afraid that they were, they were going to look like a turncoat or something because they were going to you know, pull votes away from, um, from hmm. Trump. Yeah. by potentially going for somebody else. So it's interesting. That's a whole, like another dynamic to this right now where Trump has become so polarizing with some of his people that, you know, some people who may may decide to choose a different route are almost afraid to speak up about that too. Again, that's incidental stuff that I've seen on my end, but it's definitely a thing for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, um, I think I think this is a good time to talk a little bit more generally because you know we've got I think we got a pretty good idea of, of where you're at on the specifics of this particular election, right? And these particular candidates that it looks like we're going to be choosing from. Um, well, actually, you know, do you see any sort of third party options out there? If one pops up, I'm all ears right now. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you could get a third party person to jump out of the bushes and, and, and really shake this thing, thing up, I, this would be the time. I mean, if, if any time now, I think, hmm. um, you know, I mean, we've seen third party candidates come up, uh, you know, being um, pro legalization marijuana and all kinds of stuff like that, where, uh, you know, I think, I think someone that's truly progressive um, and truly different could definitely grab a lot of votes from right now from undecided voters or voters like me who certainly are begrudgingly participating this year for sure. Do you think there's a? Do you feel like there's an opening for maybe a a realignment as well? You know, obviously the parties right now with two parties, you have to kind of do. You, do you feel the a sort of pressure to agree with everything that one side says? Uh, and you either have to completely change your views all the way to the other side on every issue or you're uh, yeah. become kind of a political outcast. Is that what it yeah. feels like? You kind of read my mind, actually. As I was saying that, I, I, I was wondering, man, this is exactly why the two-party system is really just not working well for us. Because, I mean, not only do you kind of have to play that as a voter, but also, you know, uh, financial support for, for these campaigns is very two-sided. You know, uh, nobody wants to start moving money in different directions or anything. So it's almost like we're in this like locked battle where where it ha it has to come down to two sides and they have to be you know all in or all out, whatever you choose. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but that is not the way my brain works at all. It, that's that's too it's too too binary for me. It doesn't doesn't leave space for nuance or conversation. Um, yeah, if, if anything, we definitely more need more than two parties and i think that will help this kind of this this weird deadlock that we have um that people seem to i mean i think that's what can make people a single issue voter where they're like man i hate both of these but this one issue i gotta have it you know uh -huh. um uh i i'd like to see that broken up for sure i think that's a potential that's an interesting point yeah about single issue voting because yeah you're right i mean at some point, it almost feels like you have to pick one issue above all the other ones, unless you are just a naturally partisan person um, who's, you know, bought bought into the the party system. And, you know, unless yeah. you're very, unless you believe strongly in 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 the party's platform, you kind of have to pick your what's my most important issue this election. I guess right. I'll have to vote for because the, there's going to be there's a really stark contrast. It's like it can be good to have stark contrasts, right? When you're going yeah. to pick people. An election but it gets hard when when uh, it gets hard it gets, to me it gets hard when you have to then do it and say do it knowing that you're going to cause some sort of damage to yourself one way or the other whether it be you're giving up your values on you know this issue or that or or you're potentially damaging your own business you know that type of stuff i mean like it sucks that that's the way we almost have to be voting right now because it is so partisan um it's 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 an it can be a no win situation. This is a perfect example of where we really, uh, in my opinion, don't have good choices. This is not the best and the brightest of us. This is not the most in tune versions of us uh, on either side. So, uh, you know, it, that's it's it's a very sad state of affairs when when this awesome uh, 
right that we have to participate every four years and do this is reduced to what is going to hurt the worst, the, the, the what's going to hurt the least. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, and speaking of, of the sort of approach to politics of, of, uh, being very party line and, and polarizing, um, you know, that's often been a critique of, uh, the gun rights movement uh, and mm. that it's gotten too close to the Republican party. Um, you know, that whether that's a, I think perhaps that's a bit of a push pull situation where the country polarized as well. And there aren't a lot of pro gun Democrats left, but, uh, but also some of these groups, perhaps the NRA has obviously been the focus of a lot of this criticism over the years that they're too close to Trump or too close to the Republicans generally. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering about you and and how you when you look at the 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 landscape as far as gun rights advocacy goes, um, you know, how do you feel about it? Are there specific groups that you prefer? Is there an approach that you prefer? Uh, you know, how do your feelings extend there? Yeah, so I I it's interesting again because within the last you know few years decades, um, I've I've seen more grassroots groups that I've, that I've liked. Uh, and again, not ones that I necessarily are, are major members of or anything, but just kind of watching the landscape, um, you know, where for a very long time, the NRA was probably the, the, the biggest and the baddest that you could find when it came to, to gun rights. Um, you're seeing a lot of pro second amendment groups that are coming up in, in smaller grassroots ways and ways that are representative of, of I think, what is the real landscape of the Second Amendment, which is, you know, multi multicultural, um, you know, uh, for, you know, you've got um, like LBGTQ uh, gun rights groups and stuff and and uh, and things like that. I would like to see uh, a lot more representative um, uh, uh, pro gun groups out there. Um, and I, I know they are. They just need a bigger platform or more people. And, and I think we can we can certainly make some some changes that way. Um, I would like to see that. I'd like to see a lot of small gun advocacy groups, many, many small gun advocacy groups for for a couple of reasons. Um, I think the areas we all live in, in our Second Amendment um, you know, landscape is different, whether you are living in, you know, uh, Arizona or New Hampshire or Montana, you know, uh, what you're using them for, what types of firearms you're using, that type of stuff. Like it's all a little bit different, whether you're a competition shooter, um, you know, things like that. We're using home defense, or law enforcement, like all of these different groups by themselves need different advocacy groups, in my opinion. Um, and then when you get down to gun owners as an individual, you know, again, we have, um, we have gun owners of every shape, size, color, and uh, everything else you can think of. And, and that's, that's what we should see in our in our gun rights groups, in my opinion, because it, it should be more about the advocacy for the people and what and what they want out of the Second Amendment, not necessarily just firearms and firearms technology as inanimate objects. Hmm, I see. So so groups like, um, you know, the Liberal Gun Club or Pink Pistols or mm -hmm. yeah, the National African American Gun Association, these sorts of groups that focus on a specific community and trying to represent their their needs and views inside of the the gun owning the larger gun owning community um yeah. that that's an that's an approach that appeals to you that, that you want to see more of oh absolutely i lo i love to see it my big one ten one sentence piece on that is the second amendment is for all americans and so i want to see all americans in the second amendment um and so i love i love seeing groups like that that kind of break that stereotype of, of what people think a gun owner is 
because I think that's a way to bridge the gap and kind of like, you know, reach people who, you know, think that it's just you and I, which maybe we're not helping that image right now, but, <laughs> but that's, but that's the truth is, is those people are out there. Um, and, and I want to see more of them, you know, again, uh, I think that's, it does nothing but help our cause. Okay. And so, um, do you still see value in large national groups like the NRA or, or some of these other uh, alternatives that, that do take more of a national focus on the For issue? sure. Because again, uh, you know, there is always that chance that, that voices can be drowned, drowned out. Um, you know, I think that it is, especially for something as important as the second amendment, I think it is important to have like national, uh, national uh, groups for that. I think we are seeing with the NRA that the, they can kind of, they can turn a little bit and get very complex and, um, you know, can have issues of their own. Um, so again, I, I don't know how you guard against that, but certainly it's not what you like to see in your, in your organizations like this. Sure. You're talking about the corruption allegations sure, the trial yeah. in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but presumably, you know, if, if they cleaned up or, uh, sure that you still see value in the having a, a sort of single major group to, uh, I guess, a show of strength is a uh, size and Absol- has some Absolutely. value to it. As, and again, as long as it's representative of hmm. people who support the Second Amendment, I'm all for it. Um, yeah, that's my biggest thing. Okay. Interesting. And speaking of which, I mean, obviously, you know, what you're talking about there at the gun owners reflecting America, uh, we've seen more and more of that over the last several decades, especially over the last four years or so, uh, with this spike in gun ownership among minorities and, and women in the United States. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the preference for guns moving from uh, more more rural um, and more hunting focused to more urban and suburban and more self-defense focused, uh, just sort of gun culture 2.0, as people have called this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really accelerated the last, uh, since the pandemic, you know, there's a huge mm-hmm. gun sales spike in during the pandemic. And a lot of the people who bought guns were people who traditionally own guns at a lower rate than the rest of the country. Right. And, and yep. so you are seeing a sort of flattening a, a more egalitarian distribution of, of private gun ownership in the United States. Um, yeah. And, and I'm interested as well in how that, uh, you know, obviously you're saying it should reflect gun rights advocacy, and that makes sense. Uh, but how has it affected your business? Uh, in, in, I mean, what are, what are you seeing uh, on the ground um, and, and inside of the industry itself? Are you seeing changes there as well to try and embrace these new customers or how's it going? So I'll say, so in New Hampshire, we're um, we're, we're getting different, more diverse up here, but we're not a terribly diverse state. Right. New Hampshire's, New Hampshire's pretty homogenous pretty state. White. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, the, but it is here, uh, you know, it's, it, and that's the thing is, is that when we talk about diversity, um, you know, there are groups and cultures here, uh, just like any state. And, and I think, you know, and I think seeing... it extends to beyond race, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. New Hampshire is mostly white, but, um, sure. but it's diverse in other ways. You know, certainly there's a lot of women, a lot of people who, uh, especially politically, it's fairly unique state. Um, I think, um, that's a little more reflective of the country than say Iowa, right? That's one of the reasons why New Hampshire gets attention sure. um, during, during the primaries is, uh, 
that it's a little it's it's not as conservative as Iowa. It's a little more of an independent uh, political approach there. Are you seeing that sort of shift in gun ownership show up at the store? Um, yeah, I mean, that's we're seeing kind of what we would expect from, you know, what we have here in New Hampshire. But what I am seeing is, is it's more about people who have never thought about owning firearms before. Hmm. So they are very emblematic of uh, how we are politically and and uh, and socially. But as far as like the, the firearms ownership side of it, they're brand new to the game, um, which which is great. We love to see that. Um, and it is our job, you know as people who are experienced um, is to try to bring them on board as best as possible. Um, you know, with the, the, you know, the best kid gloves and training that we can possibly provide so that they, they enjoy this right that we appreciate um, versus, you know, again, we're not gatekeepers or anything and we shouldn't be. So, so I like to be extremely hands-on with them. And I know a lot of other shops who do the same, um, you know, but, you know, there's a, you have to take everybody, um, as a new customer, when they come in with their own backgrounds and experiences, and, and, and uh, again, it is it's a lot of work for sure. <laughs> and and how are you seeing the industry as a whole adapt? Um, you know, be, beyond New Hampshire, but just your suppliers, your, the major gun companies, people like that. How are, how 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 do you think that the industry is handling this this sort of change? Uh, it's tough to tell. I mean, I look at marketing materials a lot, you know, from like manufacturers and stuff and see who they're who they're targeting and, and stuff or what their approach is. I mean, certainly seeing a lot of um, uh, more diversity and push for diversity and a lot of like social media stuff, um, you know, uh, on online content creators and, and video platforms and things like that. I think the industry itself, again, this is just from uh, my position behind the counter, checking out the, the weeklies and stuff. I don't see a major change with within the industry. If they're making pushes, that's great. I think if anything, they should be louder about it, you know, and 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 public about it because they should be proud of that. But I see it. It does not seem like the industry itself is a fast ship to turn. See, like it's it's taking a little a little while longer. In my opinion, if the industry and uh, was smart, they would absolutely start, um, you know, talking about inclusion, diversity, and bringing more people on. Um, because that's an entire market that you could potentially be having when you're talking from a business standpoint. But, you know, back to my original point, the Second Amendment's for everybody. And so you want to make everybody feel like it is for them, um, in my opinion. So, um, you know, I, there's obviously really good stuff coming out. I see, I'll see advertisements um, that kind of, you know, uh, you know, maybe strike when I see them like, oh, wow, that's a, that was a really good way they did that. It wasn't the typical, you know... Um, guy looking like me in the shadows like preparing for the break-in or something like that you know it was it was a, a, a great range photo with a you know a really awesome family and and i i that's the type of stuff that i would like to see because i think it softens our Im image as a, as a community a gun community and uh you know maybe it would make somebody say well it doesn't look like such a scary thing or such a dangerous thing you know maybe i want to look into it mm. uh you know i think that the industry has touted some of the uh, especially if, for female shooters, some of the, I guess, maturing in that market yeah, uh, where, where you've seen efforts go from just sort of painting guns, girly colors, mm -hmm. to actually redesigning guns, to to work for for uh, female frame a little bit better. Things like mm -hmm. uh, the Smith & Wesson EZ, I think, is pointed to a lot in that situation. Or yep. um, I think Walther put out a, a, a line, uh, you know, a, a modified version of their latest handgun that's... that's uh, a little more comfortable for smaller hands. Now that's obviously mm -hmm. 
some of this stuff, you know, there's not going to be a huge difference between men and women um, when it comes to, to firearms design. But there are some things that it seems you can do that will improve um, uh, women generally, their their use of the guns. Uh, how, how much of that are you seeing in the industry? Do you want to see more of that? Is you know, yeah. what, what kind of approaches are you looking for beyond marketing? So I, yeah, I love, that's actually a good thing you brought up because I love how we're getting away from, um, you know, just trying to sell a, like a, a female shooter, a pink pistol. And as someone who paints guns for a living, uh, you know, that's, that's perfectly fine with me. Yeah, because nothing I, wrong with a pink gun. Because I got, yeah, I got pl- plenty of female shooters uh, who absolutely hate pink. And I got, you know, I got some male shooters who, you know, want their stuff Tiffany blue. So it's like, it's not a, not a gender color specific thing for me, but that's, I like to see that again, this less binary thinking about, you know, what we should, how do we market to women? I don't know, give them something pink. Like that's, it's such an old way of doing things. So um, when I see stuff like, like the technology changes about like easy to rack slides or slimmer grips, you know, I got small hands uh, as a guy. So I love that stuff too. It's, it's um, not necessarily, yeah, it's, it's good for everybody. It's not, yeah, it's not just good for women. I mean, it's, if it's easier to rack a slide, that's, that's good for anybody, but uh, yeah, but it's yeah. obviously something that's maybe a bit more des- designed to address concerns that a lot of female shooters have, especially beginner shooters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, again, like I said, I think it's it's good to address those from a technology standpoint. Um, uh, but but not only that, the the, the side effects to that are we, we get better and cooler guns with a lot more options too that that we all benefit from. So I love I love that you know even when it comes to like AR uh, pistols and things like that you know there's a that's a, a great market for female shooters um, you know or smaller framed people who are trying to get into ARs but you know maybe it's a little awkward from the beginning so that's that's again another one of those. Uh, reasons why we like that as an option out there as well. So technology, uh, marketing certainly one, because I think image is a huge problem that we can have from time to time. Um, but also from a technology standpoint, we're making things much more comfortable and, and usable, modular. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the AR platform is so popular. It's it's not because it's the biggest or the baddest gun. It's because it is the most modular, customizable uh, unit you can have out there. And it's, it's technology that's hard to beat. Um, so, uh, I think that, that, yeah, technology is certainly a good direction to go in as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, look, we really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us your point of view. Uh, I think, it, I think it's fascinating. I, and I think again, that like, you're not, you're not alone in how you feel about these things. So I, I that's why I wanted to, to bring on and try and just get in your mind a little bit for, for people, uh, to have a better understanding of how. Um, you know, a certain section of the, the gun hunting community uh, thinks about these things because yeah, uh, it's not something that gets a lot of discussion, I think. I, I appreciate it. Really, I do. Uh, you know, I think that having nuanced conversations about this is is the only way forward. And um, if we can't have difficult, complex conversations about this, then only the loudest voices and kind of the ugliest voices are probably going to be heard. So uh, thank you so much for having me on and letting me letting me speak from my little spot behind the counter. It's uh, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. And if people want to learn more about uh, Wicked Weaponry, how can they yep. do that? You can hit us up on uh, Facebook or Instagram, Wicked Weaponry. Uh, pretty easy to find there. Uh, we also have a website, uh, www.wickedweaponry.com. Uh, or you can call us up. We answer the phone probably get me 33 percent of the time (laughs) all right wonderful all right well we're gonna head over to our news update now thanks so much thank you 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm getting over cold, actually, still. So I don't, you know, I don't know if it's how much different I sound to people. I would, I did CNN the other day um, on the actually on the Crumley case, which I think we had a story about last week in the newsletter. Uh, had a link to at least, and. Um, you know, when I listened to it, it didn't sound that that different. But to me, I sound way different. Yeah, that happens to me every time I'm sick, too. When I do the podcast, I'm like, oh, people are I'm going to sound so, so bad. But, right. you know, something about the audio equipment, it doesn't sound as, as quite as bad as you think in your head. It's like something about your internal ear. I think you just yeah. hear so much more of your own sickness than, than other people hear, maybe. So hopefully it doesn't come across too bad. Or maybe it makes my voice even, uh, you know, it makes it deeper and and like a better radio voice. I don't know. There you go. People have yeah, to like tell your, me when they listen. Your NPR voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> um, but yeah, what do we got in terms of news this week? Sure. So uh, into the newsletter, we got an interesting story from The Trace actually about uh, gun exports to Israel specifically. Um, they have a report showing that uh, handgun exports in particular to Israel have increased 300% in 2023 compared to 2022 um, for obvious reasons that we've covered pretty heavily. The the demand for for handguns that they liberalized their laws to allow more civilians to apply for handgun licenses and mm-hmm. U.S. gun makers have apparently uh, risen to the occasion to help meet that demand. Yeah, and this goes right to the heart of what we've been reporting on the export uh, licensing ban or pause that the Biden administration has put in place and the draft proposal to replace it, which we published right, uh, at the reload a little while back that would have directly affect Israel um, on uh, the kind of guns that could be exported there by American companies. So, you know, here's uh, here's why some of that really matters, uh, especially uh, given the, the ongoing uh, fight between Israel and, and Hamas. And uh, so, you know, I, I think that's uh, important news to, to highlight there. Yeah, it's good context for why this stuff really matters. Um, next one comes to us from the Portland Press Herald about uh, Maine and particularly Governor Janet Mills there. Uh, she gave her State of the State address where she finally unveiled what she's going to be pushing for in terms of a, a gun law response to the Lewiston shooting last year. Um, and it sounds like she's trying to kind of thread the needle with a weird quasi-universal background check uh, proposal that would only require additional background checks if you advertise a private sale, for example, on social media or, you know, gun broker or one of the online marketplaces. Um, and then she also wants a expansion of the uh, quote unquote yellow flag law that Maine has, where she wants to make it easier for police to take people into protective custody so that they can initi- initiate that yellow flag procedure. Um, so that at least is a little more, you know, narrowly tailored to what went wrong in the Lewiston case. But it's interesting to see her tr- kind of trying to walk the line between some gun laws, but not to not everything the gun control movement wanted. Yeah. And that background check proposal sounds like it'd be very hard to enforce. Uh, but I suppose that's the critique generally of, of universal background checks or, or background checks that apply outside of commercial dealers. Cause it's a lot harder to even know when something like that is taking place. Um, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see where that all ends up in Maine. Obviously there's some appetite there to, to change the laws after that terrible shooting. And, um, uh, but the state has a very rich history of uh, gun rights advocacy. So uh, we'll see how that all shakes out. Certainly. 
And then the last link we're going to hit on is uh, some big news out of South Carolina, actually. After you know, several years of trying, the South Carolina Senate officially passed a permitless carry bill. Um, that's been the big hang up in the state in the past. The ho- their house has repeatedly passed permitless carry legislation, but it's kind of died in the Senate. Um, and now that one has officially cleared, it was passed with an amendment. So it has to go back to the House to do a, a conforming vote. Um, but it looks like uh, South Carolina is set to become the 28th permitless carry state pretty soon. Yeah, the governor's already spoken out in, in favor of this bill. So I think it's on its way to to getting there. And we're on the way to hitting that ceiling that you, you talked about in uh, analysis piece not not too long. I mean, it's actually it's probably been a little while because they haven't had a lot of these these laws passed since since uh, I mean, the legislative sessions, you know, are usually the beginning of the year. So um, we had a we had a number of new permitless carry states last year, but this is gonna, probably going to be the first and maybe the last. Well, we'll, we'll see uh, of 2024. Certainly. Um, and then into some of the stories we wrote this week, there was actually a pretty major ruling out of California. Uh, Judge Roger Benitez uh, issued uh, a permanent injunction against the state's uh, background check for ammunition sales. So this is sort of a long-awaited ruling. This case has kind of moved up and down the Ninth Circuit. and uh, It started pre-Bruin and was kicked back down to Benitez after Bruin. Um, he officially said that California's requirement that every single time you buy ammunition, you get a background check is unconstitutional and a historical. So a uh, pretty big ruling. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that was this is another California first. You know, they, they were the first ones to try and implement a background check. Sorry, a background check system for ammunition purchases. That's sort of redundant on top of the background checks system for gun purchases, but um, yeah, apparently not a historical basis when you're passing a, a novel concept. Uh, not exactly the shocking outcome, but, uh, especially given Judge Benitez's uh, judicial history and some of the rulings he's he's put down in the past. But uh, I will say there is an interesting tidbit in there from Benitez where he talks about the initial the initial proposal is this was a, a proposition that was passed by uh, voters, if I'm remembering correctly, and yep. they didn't pass a background check system at the point of sale propo- proposal. They passed one that was about licensing for over a period of years. You'd have to get a license to buy ammunition, um, which he kind of uh, seemed to he, he alluded that that would have been at least an easier had an easier time of trying to pass the Bruin test, though he didn't say it would have passed it. Uh, yeah, he actually, it's funny, like three or four times in the opinion in various sections, he actually, he, he goes, you know, without, without prejudging the constitutionality of that system, it's clearly more, he used terms like it's clearly a more reasonable approach or clearly more constitutionally right. justifiable approach. And you're right. It was basically like a four year, you'd get a permit. And for four years, that permit was enabled you to, uh, purchase ammunition as long as you're still valid it wasn't revoked and you could just renew it every four years and then the california legislature for some reason amended that system that that was put to voters and just said no actually we want like a, a point of it's sale much more complicated yeah. right yeah very difficult to work and and clearly from the statistics you've seen it actually is somewhat unworkable it, yeah. it falsely flags people more than it actually catches you know prohibited persons trying to purchase this stuff um, so they added all these wrinkles that i i think just really didn't do the state any favors in court it, I mean, this was something that Benitez, even pre-Bruin, 
had at least issued a, a preliminary injunction against. Um, so under the Bruin standard, it, it was already going to face an uphill battle. And I think just the fact that it's we've still seen all these you know problems with the, the efficacy of the system, it just kind of doomed it. And this is a permanent injunction as well. This is the ruling on the merits. So it's uh, there isn't another step in in uh, in that sense. Now, obviously, the attorney general has already announced he's appealing this decision. And we'll see what the fourth, the Ninth Circuit ends up doing with this. They're notoriously hostile to uh, pro-con rulings. Right. So um, who knows what's going to happen from here. But at the moment, this system is unconstitutional and cannot be enforced because he didn't issue a stay either. And you've already seen sort of like a, a Freedom Week type scenario going on right now, because another component of this ruling was California had rules around out-of-state ammunition purchases. So the only way you could get right. ammunition from an out-of-state seller in California was like a gun purchase online. They would have to ship that ammunition to an FFL in-state, and then you'd have to go do the background check in-state. Well, since that's all enjoined now, you've seen dozens of ammunition sellers say, okay, we can now ship ammunition to you, to you California purchasers. Uh, we're going to follow this injunction. Um, and so it's sort of a, a Freedom Week type scenario for you know however long it lasts until perhaps the Ninth Circuit steps in. But Ammo Week. Yeah. Um... You know, but I do think that that Benitez caveat about the initial permit to purchase ammunition system is definitely one to watch. You know that that taken in conjunction with uh, what John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh wrote in Bruin itself and their concurrence, where they were um, more accepting of a shall issue concealed carry permitting system being constitutional uh, gives you some indication that they might, there might be room in the Supreme court's second amendment jurisprudence, uh, even, even among one of its strongest supporters at the lower courts in Roger Benitez for some sort of, for, for permitting uh, of some sort. Uh, now that they seem to not, not be happy with permitting that is, overly onerous or um that has has time limits that are too short or you know, there's there's a number of things where they they discuss you know issues with permitting systems but they they don't seem adverse to the concept uh of of various kinds of permitting whether it's for carry or for ammunition purchases or maybe even for for gun purchases generally i don't know that's definitely something to watch though i think yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And it's funny that that concurrence actually came up during this trial. Uh, Benitez talks about, I guess, A.G. Bonta tried to defend the state's background check system on the basis of that concurrence because they said, well, they blessed shall issue permitting that has background checks requirements before people can carry. And so why is this different? And the fact that this California background check, check system had so many faults and wasn't working very well, Benitez likened that to the caveat where it says nothing shall rule out challenges where, for example, lengthy wait times, exorbitant fees, you know, undermine yeah. permits. And that's why he said this was, you know, prob problematic. But like you said, perhaps a permitting system where you don't have to worry about, you know, messed up background checks every time you try to purchase ammunition, it, it might very well pass muster with some of these judges. So more of a good faith system, perhaps. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Like right. that, that's something that a lot of gun rights advocates always are upset about with a lot of these kinds of proposals. It's like maybe at the base level, it's not an unreasonable thing, but 
oftentimes they're used in in ways that are just objectively meant to try and keep people from being able to buy right. guns and ammunition. Uh, sort of like yeah. the the handgun safety roster in California is a really good example of that, right? Like maybe there's some use to keeping um, guns that are mechanically deficient or something like that uh, off the market. But when you're adding things like the micro stamping requirement in, which is a theoretical technology that no one has ever implemented in an actual production gun, um, the goal is pretty clearly not to just keep dysfunction, you know, malfunctioning guns from getting in, into the commercial market. Uh, it's just to keep people from buying new gun, newer models of guns. Anyway, we will keep an eye on that for sure. And I would expect the, honestly, I would expect to stay to be issued at some point in the near future by an appeals court panel, but we will, we'll see, you know, we obviously had that whole whiplash situation with the gun carry restrictions, their yeah. response bill. Um, so it's not quite completely predictable what might happen at the next step here, but we will we will keep you guys updated. Certainly, yeah. They're fighting for it in court right now, so we should have a decision relatively soon. Um, and then the final topic we're going to talk about today is actually where you just were this week. You spent a few days uh, actually at the NRA's corruption trial in New York, um, actually getting a witness, Wayne LaPierre, on the stand. Um, so if you want to just talk about your, your week up there in New York, uh, seeing the trial firsthand. Yeah, I did a couple of stories for the for the site on this, uh, there were a couple of revelations that came out, some new information that we hadn't heard before, which is almost kind of surprising at this point because, you know, the NRA has already been through one trial. It's been five years since these things started to surface. Uh, Mike Spies, who we had on the show a little while back, was the first reporter to publish a, a number of these allegations from internal documents. But we're still getting new <laughs> new and fairly shocking expenses that are coming out. For instance, uh, LaPierre testified this week that he actually authorized uh, private helicopter flights in addition to the private jet flights. And these were done not, uh, interestingly, he didn't try to justify them on a security basis like he has with a lot of the other expenses he's he's taken, whether it was the jet flights or even mosquito treatment for his house or landscaping for his house. He said these were security necessities because his security guards were getting bitten by mosquitoes and the landscaping needed to be redone to make his home more secure. And so the NRA had to pay for all of that uh, in his estimation under security expenses. Um, same thing for a number of some of the yacht trips he took with the NRA contractors. He's used this reasoning for a lot of a lot of the more eye catching expenses that have been reported on but in this case with the private helicopter flights he he admitted that was just to beat traffic at nascar races um this was part of <coughs> excuse me still getting over this cold this was part of an effort by the nra according to lapierre to um, raise the NRA's visibility in general culture to try and bring it to a more mainstream audience, try and convince people that it's not a right-wing group in his uh, telling, that it is a mainstream organization for all kinds of different people. And so he he argued that, you know, he had, that part of their plan was to use, 
to use, you know, events like NASCAR races sponsoring them uh, or, or recruiting celebrities from NASCAR or uh, from the NBA or from the NFL or from uh, country music into the group um, as a way of uh, promoting the organization, of, of giving it more uh, cultural influence, of countering narratives about it, negative narratives about the NRA. Um, and so part of that effort involved going to NASCAR races at times. And I guess to avoid the traffic that comes along <laughs> with going to a big NASCAR race, uh, instead of sitting in traffic, they had Wayne LaPierre and it's other NRA employees flown there on private helicopters, <laughs> which is a pretty remarkable thing, you know, like they didn't even, he didn't even try to justify that as some sort of security necessity. Just, uh, it was to beat traffic. Um, <laughs> so that was one, one revelation that came out. Um, you also had testimony from the NRA's top lawyer. John Frazier, who, uh, you know, painted an interesting picture of himself and his role at the organization. Um, you know, he, he had worked for the NRA for a while in a non-legal role as a, you know, before he became a lawyer, um, you know, in, in political roles at ILA, Institute for Legislative Action. And the NRA paid for him to become a lawyer, to take classes and and passed the bar and all that. And then he went into private practice for, for about 18 months, so less than two years. And then they, they hired him right out of private practice after 18 months to be their top lawyer, to be their general counsel, but not just their general counsel, also their secretary. Um, and they combined those two positions under him. And these are, you know, the top legal positions at the organization. And he, he had, not only did he only have 18 months as in private practice before this, but he also said he testified in court that he, he had no experience in either of those roles at all before he was hired to, to take them on. And, uh, and then while he's been, uh, the top lawyer inside the organization, he testified essentially that he was sidestepped or shut out of most of the major legal decisions that the group has made over the last five, six years. Um, that includes um, whether to sue Ackerman McQueen, which was their top uh, outside contractor for decades, right? That was That's where a lot of the issues cropped up from was this relationship with Ackerman McQueen, their old ad company. Um, a lot of the, the stuff the fancy suits, right, were bought by Ackerman McQueen for Wayne on on Ackerman's advice. You know, a lot of these things that people have heard of. The NRA executives, including LaPierre, were running expenses through Ackerman McQueen so that they didn't show up on NRA books. That's a big part of this trial, right? Um, but so there was a big legal fight between the NRA and Ackerman once some of these things started coming out into public view when the, there was... Uh, uh, an awareness that the attorney general in New York was going to start investigating them. They started sort of blaming each other for the situation. Right. And they ended up going to court and suing each other. And there were countersuits. And, but Frazier's role was apparently, he was not involved in the decision to sue Ackerman, which was a case that they lost and had to pay Ackerman um, 
I believe it was uh, like uh, eight figures, you know, to fi- 10 to $15 million, something in that range. Um, he also was not involved in the decision to, well, he, he wasn't involved in the drafting of Wayne LaPierre's employment agreement, which is what he used as the basis for taking the NRA into bankruptcy for claiming that he had the authority to do that. They said it was in his, his latest employment agreement there, even though there's no language about bankruptcy in there. Um, it talks about the structure of the organization. And so he used that as justification for making this decision, which again, John Frazier was not involved in that decision either. He wasn't involved in the negotiation, of the contract or the decision to take the NRA into bankruptcy, which of course also failed. It did not work. And, um, he uh he actually it's it's kind of remarkable he um uh was not only was he not involved but he was told wasn't told about most of these decisions until they happened like the bankruptcy filing he wasn't told about that until the day that it happened uh shortly before it happened and he was told by the people who the people who were actually making these legal decisions which is the brewer firm the NRA's outside lawyer who um who he admitted uh, the NRA has paid a hundred million dollars, uh, more than a hundred million dollars over uh, between like 2018 and 2022. So, uh, or, or 2023, but it's, it's been a, a huge sum of money that has gone to this outside firm. And they're the ones who really have, according to Frazier's testimony, made all these major legal decisions for the NRA. And they were they were the ones who negotiated Wayne's contract with, and Wayne's lawyer is a former, um, uh, uh, is connected to the Brewer firm, as well, um, and the person who told Frazier about the bankruptcy is also the person the the lawyer who is currently representing the NRA in this trial, the civil litigation that they're doing in New York. So. Uh, you know, he, they really painted a picture of Frazier as not very in control of the NRA's legal strategies at all. And um, that really Brewers is in control of all that. Um, now, Frazier said he testified that he didn't think that was inappropriate in any way. Um, and he explained the amount of money that they've been spending on the Brewer firm by arguing that the NRA during that time period has come under, uh, uh, I think he called it attack by a lot of different uh, on all sides, I believe is what he said. And, uh, you know, so their, their legal spending ramped up tremendously because of that. Uh, that was his explanation. And, um, and, and he specifically called out the New York attorney general, Tisha James, uh, who's a Democrat for, uh, being politically motivated in how she's approached the NRA in this civil suit and uh so she he he was putting the blame for how much they're spending on legal fees to brewer uh on uh, all of the legal fights that they've gotten into some of which he argued were politically motivated uh like this civil trial so uh i think those are the biggest takeaways uh, i will say there was also you know in the in the fraser piece uh, and this got some uh, attention on social media, but, but I, I think it's been a bit underplayed, honestly, because there was kind of this, uh, 
incredible scene that played out at the very end of uh, a section of Frazier's testimony where he, he was asked, um, you know, Wayne LaPierre admitted to a lot of things in this trial. He, he's already admitted to many of these things previously by paying back some of these expenses. Generally, he keeps it segregated to the private flights that he wasn't actually on, like the ones for his niece or his niece's husband, things like that, um, where he wasn't on the flight, so he can't use the security justification. And so he he admitted in court uh, to actually the NRA's lawyer that, you know, those expenses weren't proper. They weren't, they weren't, uh, they shouldn't have happened. And he claims to have paid back the NRA with interest and back taxes for all of that stuff. Um, now, of course, this has been the NRA defense for a while, and, and LaPierre has admitted this for quite a while. So it wasn't necessarily new, but uh, but it, it was something that happened in court. And so on the basis of that, and he admitted to not filing disclosures for things like trips and meals and and yacht rides that he and his wife took with uh, David McKenzie, uh, who was an NRA contractor, uh, the guy who owns the yacht that has been talked about a lot with Wayne LaPierre, the yacht that he was riding on, is a guy who's been paid by the NRA uh, nine figures over the the last decade uh, through various different companies that they contract with. Um, So there's a sort of obvious conflict of interest there, but Wayne never disclosed any of that stuff, even though he was required to by policy. So he admitted that as well in court. Um, And so Frazier's asked about this at the end of, uh, before they break for lunch in one of, uh, in court. And he's, he's asked whether or not Wayne breached his trust and Wayne is sitting there. LaPierre is sitting there in the front row. I was sitting two rows behind him. And he's watching Frazier on the stand. And Frazier equivocates, equivocates about this. Um, he says, well, you know, I, I don't think he broke my trust. He was always sort of straight with me and he would be honest about the issues that happened and wanted to rectify them. And th- that was how he approached this question of whether or not Wayne breached his trust when he didn't disclose, for instance, those those conflicts of interest. And but then he's asked about whether Wayne broke the trust of NRA members. And I honestly, I expected him to do the same thing with whether or not he broke his trust, right? And say, well, not maybe, yeah. But instead, he took a really pretty agonized pause um, and he said, I would, I'd have to say he probably did. Yes. And that was the last thing he said that that was the end of the testimony for, for that period. And, uh, and Wayne, the, you know, they got up, the jury left and Wayne, who's being escort, escorted by security the whole time. He also gets up and slowly walks out of the courtroom and he doesn't come back the rest of that day. And that was the last day that Wayne was executive vice president. So that right there where the NRA general counsel says 
in court with Wayne watching that he broke the trust of NRA members is the last thing that Wayne LaPierre did as NRA executive vice president, uh, which is pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. I, you know, when I read your piece, that's what struck me too. Is like, what you know, what a moment after this whole ongoing saga over the last few years about, you know, all these folks that are involved in this circles coming to his defense, and there's always these justifications, security reasons, you know, community outreach, blah 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 blah, and to have that be the final moment in the Wayne Lapierre saga, at least associated with the NRA officially, uh, yeah. I think was quite a moment, quite a moment for sure. Yeah, I mean, he had been EVP for since what nineteen. 19- 91, I think it was. Yeah. So it's been a very long time. And that was his last official act was watching this testimony before he left. Uh, I, I highly doubt he went and did any official NRA business after that. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty stark scene. Uh, uh, the, the setting of his, his time at the NRA. And um, yeah, I thought that was a pretty remarkable thing. You know, and he slowly, you know, he slowly walked out. He kind of uh, looked looked pretty sad. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It, it's an interesting. It, the the other half of it too is you know, Frazier and the way he answered those questions took me off guard because. And he wasn't willing to admit that Wayne broke his trust, but he was willing to admit that he broke the trust of the NRA members, which I think says a lot about both of them. Right. Uh, I mean, how, how do you, as the general counsel of the NRA, the person who's supposed to be looking out for the for the members, you you don't feel like Wayne violated your trust, but he violated the members' trust? Like, that's the, why do you have that disconnect between yourself and the members? Um, that's not good, right? Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, the other, the other half of it too, that made it a kind of a, maybe a little, even a little bit sadder is, uh, that courtroom was half empty. There was not much attention being paid to this. Uh, you know, it's not like Wayne has a bunch of supporters rallying outside the cow- the courthouse that didn't happen or even in the courtroom watching with him. You had very few people outside of reporters and even reporters, not that many, you know, maybe half a dozen. And so this is all kind of, it's all kind of going down. The ship is going down and nobody is paying much attention to it, which is pretty remarkable for, this is probably the most consequential uh, civil case, at least in the uh, gun rights movement, the history, because this is the largest group, and most powerful group that there's been in the gun rights movement. And it's um, on the verge of having a, uh, of having its face and, and, and its leader for the past 30 years forced to pay it back for stealing from it basically. And also potentially having a court appointed overseer put in place to run it because the people who are responsible for running it did a terrible job, basically, right? They they, right. they let these they either inappropriately took money from it, uh, stole from it, basically, or they allowed it to happen, or they were so negligent in oversight that they didn't even notice it happening. You know, that's what the bottom line is with a lot of this stuff. 
Right. And, um, you know, whatever you think about the NRA and its strategies. And, and I talked about this in a member's piece, you know, some of this does come down to like, you might not think that Wayne spending a bunch of money to recruit Dean Kane or Montel Williams, these are some of the celebrities that he brought up in court as uh, success cases for some of these extravagant events that they would hold in the Bahamas or whatever. Um, you might not think that's worth spending NRA money on, but that's a different calculation than it, it, you know, it was actually improper. Right. Right. And, and so that's one thing to keep an eye on and keep in mind in this case is like a lot of these expenses um, are not justifiable. And and a number of them there, the NRA's defense has always been to admit that that's true for some of these things. Um, now they obviously have a big disagreement with the New York attorney general on how many of the expenses were not justifiable. Like, I mean, they're still, Wayne is still trying to say that his mosquito treatments were justifiable business expenses because they helped his security guards, which he needed security all the time because he had death threats and, and so forth. Um, and that's how he justifies a lot of the stuff he did. He didn't pay back all of the private flights, just the ones that he wasn't physically on uh, for his family members. Right. He's cause it's much harder. There's really no defending that. Right. Um, and so he's not trying to, but he is trying to defend the other things. And, uh, and I would say that some of them are an easier case to make that they were inappropriate than others. You know, that that's where you're going to see some of these things are a matter of, well, is this just bad management or even sometimes, you know, maybe this was worth it. I don't, I don't know. You know, did, did um, like the, the safaris that Wayne went on where he filmed uh, an episode of under wild, wild skies, but uh, that was elephant hunting, right? This came out a while back the video of it. They never released it because, uh, you know, it didn't make Wayne look very good. Um, so obviously that expense did not work out well for the NRA. Um, uh, but you still could argue that it could have worked out well if, if they, right. you know, the hunt had turned out better or something like that. They're trying to appeal to hunters. That's what I think I your know. piece put it, put it well, you know, mismanagement versus malfeasance. Right. And it's like sort of subjective on some of it. Some of it, like you said, it's it. an easier is a case to be made one way or the other, but some of it you could say, well, looking at it this way, I could see where they were trying to go. And it's, it's going to come down sort of to, uh, you know, what does the jury think? Where, where does the, the lion's share of that fall in, in which camp? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so I, I don't want to get too far ahead of things here. I'm not trying to argue that clearly the attorney general is going to win or lose right one way or the other on, on these questions. I'm just saying that's, some of these things, it's going to come down to what the judge and jury think are <coughs> actually justifiable versus clearly not justifiable. Right. And uh, and then, you know, of course, the biggest question overall is whether the NRA has fixed its internal controls. Um, and that's sort of beyond the scope of some of the m misuse uh, or, you know, bad judgment versus negligence or, or malfeasance uh, that goes into like 
the structure of the organization, the people who are still there, whether they're still subverting in the internal controls or not. And, and that'll probably be the bigger question. But but yeah, a lot of it is going to come down to like some sort of micromanaging of the NRA's expenses, because that's that's what, you know, th- th- that's what the whole case is about. Like these these expenses are outrageous. Are Can they possibly be justified as business expenses? Maybe some of them can. You know, it's not insane to think that Filming some hunting series, some safari hunts could have been beneficial to the NRA's image as a representative of hunters. Now, what they actually filmed apparently is so embarrassing that they had to can the whole concept. Uh, But is the general concept bad? Uh, Maybe not. Is recruiting celebrities, paying, you know, hosting expensive events to do that? Uh, you know, can you justify all that business expense? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, that's that's where you get into some of this stuff. Uh, but I think the the broader picture is still like there's are they've already admitted to a lot of the mouth to, to some of the malfeasance. Then this has been their illegal strategy all along. Like, can't deny all of it. So admit to some, claim that they've reformed, and uh, hope that the hope for basically leniency. Uh, from the judge. And I don't, I, I also, I will say in my time in the court, I didn't see a big deviation from that. You know, there may have been these dramatic moments like Wayne's, you know, final uh, hours as the, the head of the NRA and that testimony that he sat through, but they all still seemed in line with that general approach. I didn't think the NRA took much harsher uh, tone towards Wayne than they already had before. You know, he had already paid back hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of expenses. And I didn't see them go after him for stuff beyond what he already admitted to. Uh, you know, in fact, the questioning where he admits to, there was a whole line of questioning where he's admitting that these, uh, the, you know, the idea of paying for his niece's private flights is a not appropriate you know that came from the nra but it all felt pretty like they were on the same page the whole time uh for that so uh, you know there have been some talk before the trial started that the nra was going much harder after wayne than than maybe people thought they would or, or after the other individual defendants but i don't know that i've seen much of that um it still seems like the same basic game plan which is you know admit to some wrongdoing Claim reform and hope for leniency, uh, and we'll we'll have to see whether or not that pays off in the end. You know that that's what's still an open question as we head into the second half of the trial. The the, <coughs> the attorney general is was supposed to wrap up her part of the the trial uh, last week. Uh, obviously, this show is coming out. Sunday for members, right, as always, and Monday for everybody else. But but uh, so she was supposed to wrap up her, her half, but it looks like that's going to drag into Monday. Uh, and they'll be, she'll be done then. And then you go into the defense case. And, and I'm hoping to get back up there again. You know, there should be probably another couple weeks of this trial before it's all over. But, um, yeah, as it sits now, I don't think the basic structure has changed. We've seen a couple new revelations like the ones we talked about. Uh, but 
I, I don't see a huge shift in the NRA's strategy or Wayne strategy or, or so forth. It's just, it's, uh, we, I, we, I was a little bit surprised by some of the things that happened and some of the stuff that was said and some of the new revelations, but it, uh, I would say overall, it's still the same basic case going forward here. Yeah, certainly. But uh, yeah, you got any fun plans this weekend, by the way? Well, it kind of depends. We were getting some reports of a potential snow apocalypse down here in Denver, uh, potentially oh, a nice. foot of snow overnight. Wow. So if that's Are you going to go I up prob- to the mountain or something? No, I don't think so. Uh, probably just be snowed in downtown uh, uh-huh. if that's the case. But if not, you know, maybe try to go shoot or I got a buddy whose birthday it is. So maybe I'll go try to you know, grab dinner with him. And But other than that, nothing big planned. Nice. Yeah. I, you should, you should try to head up to the mountain and get the fresh powder. That's always the best stuff. You know, as a lifelong Colorado and I actually don't ski or snowboard. So I'm kind of, really? uh, yeah, an outlier in Damn. that regard. Yeah. yeah. You're like missing out on half the point of living there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up, I grew up playing ice hockey. So, you know, ah, hockey right. season was always right when all the skiing and snowing or snowboarding was good. So okay. sports instead of uh, hitting the mountains. And then I oh, just so never picked it up. As an adult, it's not as good for the, for hockey. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it could be fun in the winter classic, but uh, not you get too much of it. So you can't skate anymore. <laughs> that's right. Um, no, that's cool. Well, well, I'm probably going to go up to the mountain. Uh, my birthday is coming up in, uh, on the 10th. And actually, uh, of course, Trump is speaking at the NRA's Great American Outdoor Show, uh, which I'm planning to go in. And cover that as well. So kind of a lot of traveling here the last couple of weeks uh, for you guys. But um, at least the uh, Great American Outdoor Show is in Pennsylvania. It's right by, it's in Harrisburg. It's right by where I went to college, which is also where I like to go and snowboard. And it's not that far from Virginia. It's got you know, two, two and a half hours, something like that. And uh, so I'll probably go up for the show, write something on the speech and the whole situation there. And then go to the mountain. Uh, go around little like uh, it's called Round Top because it's near Gettysburg. So, uh, oh nice, yeah. Uh, it's not. I don't think it's anything quite like what they have in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not Vale, but it's uh, it's it's fun, and uh, I'm hoping to get some snowboarding boots. I have my, <laughs> I still have my snowboarding boots from high school, but they've kind of fallen apart. So, I'm gonna get some new ones and take my snowboard from high school, which is still fine. And uh, maybe do a little bit of snowboarding. I haven't been snowboarding in a couple of years, actually. So hopefully the weather cooperates. We had a bunch of snow like two weeks ago. Then it got really warm and then it's gotten cold again. That's kind of what it's like to live in this area. <laughs> you, yeah. you got to hit, you got to take the snow when it, when it comes. Um, otherwise you might end up with a icy mess on the mountains where you get that freeze yeah. melt cycle. If it's too warm in the winter. Um, which is a great way to to slip out and get a concussion, if, uh, uh, which I know from experience. Uh, <laughs> I, I wear a helmet now when I snowboard, which is I recommend to anybody. There's no reason to not do that. But um, anyway, um, you know, in the in the 2000s, we were we were very cool and radical and didn't need <laughs> helmets until we busted our heads. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so that's my plan. Uh, so I'm going to snowboard and you're going to sit inside, I guess it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's not even, not even football this weekend. So it's kind of, a bummer. yeah, there is uh, <laughs> uh you could watch the NHL, uh, all-star game, I guess. That's true. The all-star game is this weekend. 
and I think the NFL won it, the Pro Bowls this weekend too. So yeah. the games that that nobody cares about are that's happening. right. Yeah, that's um, right. At least the skills competitions are sort of interesting to watch. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, it's just kind of funny because I'm I'm going to go snowboard in Southern Pennsylvania, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you're going to be snowed in in Colorado. That's right. Uh, and, and, uh, that's pretty funny. Uh, but either way, uh, we I think we both need to get back to the range soon. I, I didn't even get to shoot anything at Chacho Show because I didn't end up there at Range Day. I would like to try that that new uh, the Daniel Defense version of the Hudson H9 and see what that's actually like. Maybe my range, maybe our range got one in. I'll have to check it out. But uh, yeah, I'll keep you guys updated if I do. Um, that. That red dot I I bought um, working out pretty well pretty well the Sealy I like it so far um, and I haven't uh, oh I you know what I ended up I might have mentioned this last show but I ended up doing the uh, extension base plate for a ten round magazine uh, from a, a three regular three six five and that's what I'm going to use for my DC carry. Um, I haven't done it yet though. I haven't actually carried it in the city. Uh, I haven't really had much reason to go in there. <laughs> the CNN interview I did the other day, I did from here. Um, it's cause I was sick and I didn't really want to get anyone uh, sick. Plus, uh, Jake Tapper, whose show I was on was, he was out in, in Los Angeles anyway. So it wouldn't have been in the studio regardless, but, uh, yeah. So I haven't really been in the city much. And also I don't think I can carry it CNN anyway <laughs> they don't want you carry it there yeah. um, so it's kind of like there's no uh, I have, just haven't been anywhere that I would carry in DC I, I don't go into it that often but it's nice to have at least the option to to defend myself especially because DC especially these days yeah it's on the other end of the, the murder trend uh, as of late you know it, it's gone from uh, everywhere else we had record declines in the murder rate right as a, as a country it's really an incredible thing to see but a couple outliers still exist and dc is one of them and they've had a real bad problem uh, over the last five years with uh both murders and carjackings especially so it's not a place you you uh necessarily um i mean it's look it's not you can still go into dc and you're without being murdered I don't, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but uh, it is a significant problem. It's, it's a real problem in the city. And, and uh, so it's nice to be able to have the option to defend myself if needed. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I haven't needed to yet. I'll let you guys know how that goes when I do. But uh, that's all we've got for this week. So we will uh, see you guys again real soon. Uh, look, if you like the reporting that we do, you can head over to the reload.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You get one week, one a week, one email. It's not going to flood your inbox like a lot of places do. And uh, of course, if you want more, if you want a better understanding of what's going on, you can buy a, a reload membership and that'll get you access to hundreds of pieces you wouldn't get otherwise. It also is the way that we are able to produce this kind of reporting. It's not cheap to go up to New York City and sitting on a trial, uh, I can tell you that much. And um, uh, of course, it's not just, uh, we're not a charity here. We, we, get, we try to give you as much value as possible for your money. So 
you get access to hundreds of members, member exclusives that you won't find anywhere else. And you get the podcast stay early and an opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. If you so choose, uh, hopefully we'll have some more of those in the future. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a great way to support an independent publication. We are, I, I own 100% of the reload and, and, uh, this has put uh, all my money into making it work. So <laughs> uh, hopefully you guys believe in it as much as I do. But uh, the, if you can't afford to buy right now, please feel, you know, the other way you can help us is by rating these shows uh, and sharing them with people you think would be interested or forwarding your, your weekly newsletter to somebody you think would be interested. Any, anything like that helps spread the word about the reload. Um, and yeah. Uh, you can also, of course, uh, rate the show wherever you're listening to it, and uh, and I hope you do. We and we listen to your feedback as well. You know, whenever you, somebody sends us feedback, I always try to take it seriously. And uh, now I'm going to go and have some Alka Seltzer Plus. I think. <laughs> <laughs> try to. <coughs> oh God! Yeah, let's end the show. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs> <laughs>